Don't Say That, podcast for your big questions, your real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Oh yeah. With us all the way from our here Tennessee is Lee Younger. You know, I just can't stop the countdown in my brain until we get to episode 666. It is very exciting. We're that much very closer. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the doomsday clock is set. It's, it's only, uh, but, but a scant uh, few episodes away. Here's what people don't realize about one Matthias King is that when you say the word doomsday, his brain immediately goes to the doomsday book, which is a totally different thing than a doomsday clock. And now all this historical stuff is just rolling through his brain. Stupid Normans. <laughs> no respect for privacy. Why do you need to know how many oxen I have? <laughs> But there's just nothing to be done about them. It's intrusive, and it's unhelpful, as in with so many things. One could say the Doomsday Book and Doomsday itself will be a kind of emergency. And we have one of our own. It's a Christian radio emergency. Oh. Now, you might be thinking, is it about the music they play on Christian radio? Not exactly. Is it just the things they say on Christian radio? Also kind of, but not exactly. Um, <laughs> in this case, it's a little bit more uh, how the Christian radio itself is happening. According to uh, Rolling Stone magazine, perhaps you've heard of it, a nonprofit education media found educational media foundation is the country's fastest growing radio chain, and it's exploiting federal loophole to buy up local radio stations and take the devil's music off the air. Whoa, oh, yeah. This, uh, this, um, group, which there's a certain evil to, uh, the, you may be aware of the phrase, the banality of evil. And I don't think that's referring to this kind of thing, but when you name your thing, stuff like the educational media foundation, I'm going to assume you're evil. Fair. Fair. Yeah. It's just, that definitely sounds like a, a company from like the book 1984. <laughs> yeah, it's got a real Omnicore vibe. <laughs> so apparently this uh this group is going around buying up uh rock stations and then switching them over to uh the CCM format. Okay. Uh they tried this in Boston with a a station called WAAF. Um, and people uh, did not take too kindly to it. And uh, having been to Boston, I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to make those people angry. Quite frankly, <laughs> I like the idea that <laughs> I like the idea that that somebody in charge is like subverting this effort, and they decide to name the station AAF, but for them it stands for Angelic AF. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go. Apologetics AF radio. <laughs> oh, dang, dude. Yes. Yes. So and what's funny about this story as they, they go kind of about this, this whole takeover, this particular one in Boston, is they fight back. The, the rock station they're taking over fights back by being like, we're going to go hardcore and be satanic back at them. And they do it by playing Black Sabbath songs. <laughs> and... I'm I look I wasn't alive in the late 60s. I'm sure it was super duper scary. 
to hear a slightly distorted guitar and an insane man from Birmingham, you know, wailing over the top of it. But um, once you've had the reality show about your wacky family for longer than you were a, a scary band, um, I'm just not sure the we're getting rid of the evil rock and roll has the oomph it used to. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I feel like, you know, Jed at this point has had so much um, experience with the world of radio. Yeah. And, and you too, Matt, like working with, with Jed all those years. But like, I, I'd like the idea, I like the idea of like a, like a kind of a, a subversive effort to um, make the Christians that are buying up these radio stations think you're on their thing and use words that they wouldn't understand. Like th- they would, they would hear the words, the the lyrics and think that, you know, you're on their innocuous inspirational thing, but really you're subverting the whole effort. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that would be a worthwhile creative process. Oh, I've I've got it. I've got it. Hang with me for a second. We're Ready? gonna we're gonna get there. Oh. I just want to thank all of you who are listening along with us today on our positive and encouraging programming. And I want to tell you about how in the scriptures the, the Lord is described as the, the great physician. You might say that he's the one they call Dr. Feel Good. <laughs> he's the one that makes you feel all right. He is the one they call Dr. Feel Good. Friends, as you listen today, if there's one word of encouragement I could leave you with, it's that he is going to be your Frankenstein. That happened so fast, so much faster than I thought it was going to happen. I have a gift, sir. I have a gift. I, because this is only me piggybacking off AJ's, um, his setup there and because he gave him doing that gave me time to think of it. But similarly, if you want to take it in a slightly more charismatic direction, friends this morning, we're going to raise our voices. We're going to raise our voices against darkness. We're going to shout. We're going to cry out. We're going to be loud in the face of evil. And the one who would, the one who would deceive the one who would lead us astray. We're not going to go quietly to it this morning here on positive Christian K love FM. We're going to shout at the devil. There's more Motley Crue overlap than you'd think. Yeah. I feel like you yeah, can get a is. lot of Motley Crue songs on there if you <laughs> just ramped them up. Thanks for tuning in to Apologetics AF. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, actually, I think, Jed, I think you may be on something here, Lee, um, and Jed's addition there to it, because as we mentioned, you know, if their version of something that's like scary and like is so rooted in the 70s as to be Black Sabbath, could you just get away with uh, secular stuff from the eighties that is just anodyne now? Wow. That they, they just kind of missed cause they were only listening to the Starland vocal band or whatever. And just convince them that Motley Crue is Christian. Totally. Totally. Tons of Roses sounds like a Bible thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this, if you, so if this, EMF uh, is taking over. Uh, would anyone care to guess uh, where they're headquartered? I'm uh, going to guess can... Franklin, Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> From its headquarters in a Nashville suburb. Uh-oh. EMF plays the generic. The, this is Rolling Stone, but I agree with it. 
the generic sounds of contemporary Christian music or CCM. It's a genre everyone from artists to critics to church leaders have decried as being somewhere between quote, the absolute worst and quote, doctrinally unsound. (laughs) (laughs) Forget positive encouraging. And W A A F the absolute worst doctrinally unsound. Yeah, that's what, that's that's where we need the radio voice doctrinally unsound. <laughs> so, absolute worst. It works cuz this is apparently the Educational Music Music Foundation is actually K-Love. Uh Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds yeah. of cookie cutter stations branded as K-Love as well as its smaller chain of Air One stations. So there's a minor league K-Love, which is a fascinating idea. Oh, man. EMF broadcasts on more than 1,000 signals across 50 states and an estimated 18 million listeners a week. I'm not sure it reaches them. Yeah. Yeah. It also goes on here to talk about how they just don't have DJs. It's literally just they just put on a playlist of the same six songs. Yep. Yep. And also how uh, they're using Christian uh, radio as a uh, softer side of conservatism to backdoor in fascist messaging. So that's cool. That's fun. The the kind of the entire um, tenet, uh, tenor of this article that is written by the Rolling by Rolling Stone is like this is bad. So we have to take it seriously, but I can't believe that there's something this bad and this lame simultaneously going on. <laughs> and I and would you say know what? fair. Yeah. Also the CEO of uh, EMF makes $770,000 a year. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, as of 2022, uh, the little known organization had just shy of a billion dollars in net assets with the annual revenue of nearly a quarter billion. National Public Radio, by comparison, had net assets of less than 150 million, and operated at a near break-even. They have uh, almost twice the amount of money as National Public Radio. Yep. Ninety-seven cents of every dollar the organization makes come direct comes directly from listeners' pockets. EMF's on-air hosts repeatedly hound their sometimes hard-up listeners for money, often several times in an hour. That's look, and I, this is not a group of people I'm prone to have a lot of sympathy for, but if you somehow are a Christian radio DJ who's listening to this now, um, you, they're, they're not going to give you any of this money. Nope. Um, there's better ways to make a living. Yep. Yeah. But on the other hand, get ready for a nonstop block of doc. Trinilly unsound music. <laughs> <laughs> the nonstop block of doctrine. <laughs> Doctrinally unsound. That's great. Man. Like that's, you know, I, I know they can't do it, but um, where is the, this would be the only way uh, Caleb could be interesting to me is to just try to do like the weird bad boy thing. Okay. Like, oh, it's dangerous. It's doctrinally unsound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, turn it to WAF and rip the knob off. You're going to hear some Armenianism in this next song. You wouldn't even know when it's coming. <laughs> We're going to play fast and loose with your definition of communion. <laughs> These crackers are so stale, you might cut the roof of your mouth. (laughs) Okay, this is, I can't tell if this detail in the story is someone intentionally being actually very funny or just the the level of self-awareness lack just being insane. So uh, they're describing uh, how they can listen. They said, uh, there's... Of along there, just one playlist of guitar driven worship songs interspersed with promotion for EMF apps that allow you to listen anywhere. This is apparently a quote from that ad from the Kalo station itself. You can listen anywhere, quote, even the Chili's parking lot. Wow. Okay. Wow. Like, is that someone who is writing that copy getting their own back, or is that just someone very sincerely going, we know our audience. They want to know if they can hear this in the Chili's parking lot. <laughs> I, I think it's the latter, dude. I yeah. think it's the latter. That's, um... I didn't know that the Chili's was an internet dead zone in general, but... Yeah, like, we're all pretty familiar with the, the idea of an app at this point. Right. Like, and there's audio on your phone. You can listen to it. Calling out the Chili's parking lot is... <laughs> You know, you've yeah, just that's... sat through a great church service. You went in those Chili's parking lot. You uh, returned your your uh, fajitas four times. You didn't tip. And now you can come back into the parking lot and listen to some K-Love. <laughs> I, I might add, there's the one thing that's worth noting, right, is that like most advertising by design, you know, and, and especially branding, right, has an aspirational quality to it, right? Like it's describing a life that is just a little bit cooler than you actually are. Which means that if you oh, know you're your in the audience, Applebee's parking lot now, that's what I'm but talking about. If you stick about. to it, that's what I'm talking about. This is for listeners that are hanging out in the Applebee's parking lot, but they dream of someday upgrading to Chili's. <laughs> Chili's may be a chain restaurant, but it does have flavor, unlike our music. A love. <laughs> There's no southwestern spice on any of these songs. So, yeah, and I don't know about you, gentlemen, but I, I try to go through life um, not being conspiratorial. I try not to get sure. into that idea that there's, you know, a bad things happen because of uh, cabals of people that I don't like. And, that, you know, my, the world would be so much better if only the people who disagree with me were uh, not in power, not in charge of things. But then you give me things like, hey, you know, what's part of what's ruining the media landscape in America. Caleb's buying up all the stations by using a tax loophole and trying to rip people off for money. And that does not help with my not trying to live in a conspiracy world. Yeah. 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 So, uh, with that said, and that we cannot actually in the situation, what we can do is declare emergency off. With that, we will move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us and how it's all the, all the way to the end, I'll give some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links you find there. First question comes in and says, what do you do when you feel frustrated with God or frustrated with the life? But I guess that's the same thing, right? Uh, a very, very cool question. And I think there's a, a lot to, to grab onto there. So Lee, where would we start? 
This is a great question. I'm, I'm so glad that you wrote this in. Um, and the, the thing that I would say is, man, uh, just straight out, I just tell him. I just start to have the conversation. The thing that, that we believe at the basis of people that, who are trying to follow Jesus or, or believe in God, the thing that we believe is that we are in an actual relationship with someone that we can't see, who really, really wants to hang out wants to talk about everything, wants to engage in every part of life. And I think that the place that that starts from from my perspective and from your perspective is where where I would encourage you is just to start engaging and having that conversation in completely as vulnerable and raw a way as you can. Just go for it. Um if if that means, you know, you're talking to the create who you believe and follow as the creator of the universe being completely unfair with you and your life situation, go for it. He has heard worse and he's taken, uh, you know, deeper accusations than that before and he can totally handle it. And I think that's a really, really good place to start with this is to realize that the scriptures, um, the, the, the book where we have it, where, where the personality and, and, the history of God dealing with human beings has been revealed to us includes people not only praising God, but also blaming God for stuff, uh, questioning God about things. Um, yes, there's, there's waiting on him and listening to him, but there's also complaining to him and being really, really upset. And what's, what's really cool um, from my perspective as a person that is you know, continuing to try to to have a relationship with and walk with God is um, that God in a, in kind of directing and inspiring that book to be written did not scrub those parts out. Those parts that might be, you know, from a certain perspective, uh, like a little more um, defaming or embarrassing or something. It's like, oh, these are the people that are supposed to follow me, and they're questioning me and yelling at me and and blaming me and and accusing me of being unfair and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he left all that in there. And I think that he left all that in there so that we see the example of he wants to have an actual and real relationship where you get to ask the questions. And, you know, some days you're going to feel, um, some days you may feel excited about who God is and what your relationship with him is like. And some days you may feel really, really frustrated about that. And the the evidence that we have or the example that we have from the scriptures, and I've certainly kind of leaned into it with my own life, is every single piece of that spectrum is welcome in this relationship. Whatever honesty would be is welcome in this relationship. If you're frustrated, you get to talk to him about that. And yeah, I would encourage you figuring out what it would look like in your life, whether that's through meditation, whether it's putting your phone on silent, whether it's figuring out some different practices, I would encourage you to figure out what it means to listen on the other side of that. But I think this relationship encourages questioning. Um, This relationship encourages complaining. This relationship encourages blaming. It encourages all that stuff. Yes, there's praise and there's and there's thanks and there's all and and there's you know supplication and. Hey, help me, all those kinds of things. But there's also, I don't get it, and I think this is unfair. And when are you going to show up? And all of that is laid out for us in the scriptures as these are acceptable ways to encounter God. 
And God not only, like I said, allows all that to remain in the book, but um, he actually calls some of the people who did it people after his own heart. And so that's an encouraging thing. Um, that's an encouraging thing for us to to see. The other, the only other thing I would I would lay out in this is as you look at the landscape of your own life, and you look at things that feel, um, things that feel frustrating or things that feel unfair. I think sometimes it's worth it to make the kind of list where you determine. What's the difference in things that I can control or I have some agency in and things that I have no agency in whatsoever? So some of the things in your life that are going to be frustrating and difficult are things that you might actually have something that you can do about that. And if you don't exactly know what that is, then I would encourage you to seek some advice or look for an expert. Um, But some of the things you're going to have some agency in. So you may have a particular... Um, you may have a particular, uh, you know, physical health thing that you're going through or some mental health stuff or whatever. And you may feel like I don't have, there's nothing I can do about this. And actually there may be something you can do about that. There may be professionals that you can talk to and, and appointments that you can set up and medicine that you can take that could really, really change the course of the way that you feel. The same thing could be said about your living situation or your rent or your roommates or that, you know, just the state of like, um, if the, if the apartment is messy or clean or, you know, boundaries in some relationships, there's all kinds of things that may be really difficult or frustrating about your current life situation that you actually do have some agency in and some choice in, and that you could make some changes about. It would be, I think it would be really helpful for you to take a survey over some things in your life and figure out what do I actually have some choice and some agency about and con- control over? And then what do I have zero control. Like I have no control over this part of my life. And on that second category, that's the place where I would encourage you in your walk with, in your relationship with the Lord, that's where you get to go into, into that, into those conversations, just completely open and raw and just say, what is the deal? I don't understand it. And I'm frustrated. And here's how I feel about it. And I want you to change it. I want you to get down here and help me. Um, I think taking a survey of what you have control over and what you don't have control over and understanding that if you're trying to walk with the God of the Bible, you're walking with a God who encourages questioning, complaining, raw vulnerability, honesty, praise and thanks, and everything in between. If we start to make those distinctions and we realize the God of the Bible that we're actually dealing with, I think that you'll find you have you've got a lot of leeway and you've got a lot of openness in figuring out how to manage some of these frustrations that you're dealing with. I, it's a really, really fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, where do we take it from there? All of that is great stuff. Uh, pause this episode, rewind it, listen to that answer again. Every bit of that is spot on. Um, let's build on that for a second. Uh, one of the great, certainly American lies is that, Anger gives you clarity that when you get angry, you can see the truth of things that when you get frustrated, you can see what's really going on. And, uh, that is not true and not accurate. Um, I so agree with Lee that making a list of what you can control and what you can't control where you do and don't have agency is a perfect idea. And then finding the relevant subject matter experts 
who can walk through that list with you and advise um, their both expertise-driven and perhaps just as importantly, dispassionate take on where they believe you have some options. Honestly, one of the reasons why um, people consult with attorneys and uh, public relations experts and um, uh, military strategists and, and everything under the sun is to ask, where are my options? What what is going to be what it's going to be and, and where are the places where I have some choices that I can make and I can and I can do things differently. And when you're feeling frustrated, um, recognizing that yourself that that's not giving you an extra dose of clarity. If anything, it's going very far in the opposite direction and recognizing that more than ever, you do need to figure out where you have control, but you need outside voices that can help you navigate that is really, really important because I think the interesting thing is that there's probably bad news and good news. There, there are probably some things where you feel like, um, you know, if you just did something uh, inadvisable, it all work out. And you need people can be like, nope, that would blow up in your face. You should not do that. And there's probably other things where it's like, I don't, I don't think there's anything I could do at all. And a person with relevant expertise can say, actually, let me walk you through these steps. You're going to do it like this. You're going to do it like this. It will actually open this other door that you can then walk through. It's, it's way more solvable than you think it is. Um, I can tell you that I've been involved in work for a long time where people pretty regularly ask my advice, and they usually ask my advice when things are not going well and they're very upset about it. And they very rarely have a good sense of what is and isn't possible and where they do and they don't have control. Um, so beginning to, to think in terms of where do I do, where do I, and where do I not have control? And then finding people who have expertise. And again, who are able to be dispassionate about it, who can, who can speak to that is incredibly important. And it, it's absolutely what I would do. Um, if I were in your shoes, the other thing that I think is is important and that, again, is a thing that absolutely I would do um, is I think that there is a great comfort to be found in simply understanding better how it is that you feel. You use the word frustrated, and the interesting thing about frustrated is it's not a very clearly defined word. Um we we all use that word a lot, but if you if you said I need you to define for me in very precise terms what does it mean to be frustrated, I don't think many people could do that because it's kind of a, a catch-all term. And again, I think there's a lot of peace to be had in having a better sense of even if I don't have a fix for it, here's how I'm actually feeling. If you've never dealt with this before, I want to encourage you to to go to a website called feelingswheel.com. Again, feelings wheel.com and it's it's a tool that's used by all kinds of people but it is basically a big wheel where you can kind of find the way you, you kind of sort of think you feel and then you can kind of get way way more precise with what it is that you're feeling and that's going to do a couple of things the first is again it's true for me and i think it's true for a lot of people the better you can name what you're feeling the easier it is to find some peace about it I think it's very difficult to um, get some acceptance and get some peace when we can't even articulate what it is that we're feeling. I think that's that's very, very tough. 
But the second thing is that the more precise we can be about what's bothering us, the likelier we are to find a relevant solution. So if you were to go to your good old feelings wheel and, and you say, well, I'm, I'm generally in the, in the mad direction, but let me work through it. Feeling disrespected and feeling jealous are both kind of negative, angry-ish emotions, but they're different emotions. And honestly, they probably require different solutions to deal with. Um, you know, the, the way that you would in a healthy way handle feeling disrespected and the way that in a healthy sense you would handle jealousy are, are, are oftentimes a bit different. And so, again, interestingly, this kind of goes back to this idea of being upset doesn't give us clarity. Our culture tells us that it does. It, it acts like anger is almost a superpower. It's, it's super not. It's super, super not. The more that we can inject clarity in the situation, clarity about what we're actually feeling, clarity about where we do and where we don't have control is going to give us both a great deal of peace and a great deal of guidance about the places that we can move forward and get to a place that is better in our lives. Really, really great stuff from both of these guys. I would I'd kind of tack on to what, what you've heard here. Um, taking it back to where Lee started us off with uh, talking about it, which is a great thing. I think there is a, when we're in moments like this, when we're thinking about how we feel towards God, there is, we're going to come up with a lot of other relationships that we're treating this like that are not exactly it. And I think one of the most common ones is uh, either upset parent or boss. So there's the idea that you really have to not upset them if you need to bring this up you need to do it respectfully you need to do it you know uh, very conditionally you need to be very polite about it not set them off and as lee points out that's just actually just not how you have to come to god um hey man what the hell is a pretty pretty solid uh, prayer starting point if we look at uh, a lot of uh, the the scriptures so you can you can be raw in that and i uh, would follow up exactly what joe was saying there about frustration because i think it's a very interesting point and he is exactly right. And that is not a well-defined term. I think when I think of it for myself, um, frustration is measured in the gap between the outcome. I think I should be getting and the outcome I am currently getting. And it really lives in there. And as these guys have both pointed out, um, there's a lot to unpack in that. There's a lot to analyze in that. There's a lot to feel your way through in that. There may be some, some things you're doing that are affecting that outcome. There may be some things that you, are outside of your control, but you can acknowledge that are affecting that outcome. And then there's um, just the stuff you're going to have to get into uh, directly with the Lord. And these guys have given you some very, very good steps on doing that. So with that, we're going to move on to our next question. It comes in and says, how much do I need to try at my job? I heard a lot growing up about working as if for the Lord, not for man and excellence in all things. But that kind of seems like a scam when it means to do more work than I'm getting paid for. And an excellent question. And uh, Lee, where do we start off here? Well, before we jump into this question, which I think it's an excellent question, I do want to commend Matt on his very good um, translation of the original Hebrew of, of Psalm 13 and what the hell. That was... Yep. And though he, though he saith, hey, bro, what the hell? Exactly. Now, this is a great question, and um, I, the place I want to start is is really by defining some terms. L- let's let's ask the question: What does working as if unto the Lord 
mean? Um, you know, whatever you do, do it as if it's as if you're doing it unto the Lord. Um, and let me say, this is what my impression of that was basically the entire time I was growing up in, um, you know, Protestant evangelical churches. Um, that means giving every last thing you have to everything that you do, never stopping, never resting, never sleeping, being, being indefatigable. Yes, Lee, to that point, um, uh, I once knew a gentleman who uh, had injured so many other people in a standing game of ultimate Frisbee that we had to sit him down and say, like, hey, bro, you got to chill out. And his defense was, well, I'm just, you know, I was trying to do all things as unto the Lord. Oh. <laughs> I was like, no, you don't, you don't need to, A, you don't need to ultimate Frisbee as, as if unto the Lord. But also, um, you need to stop shoulder checking uh, smaller girls. That's not what that means. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, that's where we need to start because there is a mindset in which, like, to do something as unto the Lord is to, you know, to never stop, to never rest, and not even, you know, like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of thing. I, I'm going to give everything I've got because, you know, the, the Lord is watching and, um, and and I need to be busy or whatever the thing is. And um, I would just call a gigantic timeout over that whole thing and say, you know, anybody that's given you that impression of what it of of what working as unto the Lord would be, is apparently a person who hasn't read that book that they say that they love they love so much, because um, the Lord in that book in the scriptures, like, is constantly valuing balance and rest, um, meditation, prayer, relaxation, fun, parties, enjoyment. There's just a lot of, like, friendships, um, like, all kinds of things that are just different kinds of way of, you know, kinds of ways of living your life that are not just nose to the grindstone at all times be as efficient as possible and accomplish as much as possible. So we need to start there with defining what does this mean to work as if I'm working unto the Lord? Well, let, let me just suggest this, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but it's just a suggestion. Given the fact that the scriptures do encourage a life of balance where you have, you have work, you have creativity, you have fun, you have relationships, you have enjoyment, all of those kinds of things, um, and that you know, balancing all of that. What if working unto as a as unto the Lord means, you know what? In my life, I'm not a lone wolf. I don't get to do just whatever in the world I want to. I'm actually accountable to to a being who created me, cares about me, and wants my best, and is over me. And so, I want to do my job uh, with integrity. And then when I clock out, I want to live in my family or with my friends or with my hobbies or with my rest. I want to do that with fullness as well so that I recharge my batteries so that I'm ready to live the life that I've been made to live. Um, That's a completely different perspective than this idea of like, I've got to crush myself. 
completely down to nothing every single day, or I wasn't doing my life as unto the Lord. The, the Lord wants you to have fulfillment. The Lord wants you to have balance. The Lord wants you to have friends and enjoyment. The Lord wants you to laugh and enjoy good food. The Lord wants you to rest and to sleep. There is a prophet in the Old Testament who had like the greatest day of his life up until that point, like the greatest success he had ever lived. And then all of a sudden he went into the deepest depression that he had ever been in. And he's just kind of running his life out, just running his heart out, just trying to get away from this horrible moment that he had had. And literally an angel of the Lord appears to him, gives him some food and tells him to take a nap. He gets up from the nap and the angel gives him more food and says, now take another nap. Food and rest, my friend. You had a big day. That was really great. Now you need food and you need rest. This is in the scriptures. What we need to figure out is what does a life of balance look like? What if, what if living as unto the Lord means I have a life of fulfillment where I exercise the, the gifts that God has given me, I enjoy the relationships that God has put into my life, I find the things that bring me joy and fullness, and I enjoy those things. I rest when I need to rest. I eat when I'm hungry, and I have a full and fun life. What if that's what it means to live as unto the Lord? I just want to bring that up as a suggestion because everything that I've seen in the scriptures gives me the evidence that God wants me in a full life to enjoy it. He wants me to, he wants me to work. He wants me to exercise creativity. He wants me to have fun relationships. He wants me to have fullness. He wants me to strive. He wants me to take risks. He wants me to do all of those things. He also wants me to sleep. He also, he also wants me to enjoy time with my friends. What if that's what it means to work and to live as unto the Lord? It's a wonderful, wonderful place to start that off. Jed, where would we pick that up? Love everything that Lee said. Uh, this is definitely one of those ideas from Scripture where it's super important to try and be mindful of the expectations of our modern culture versus the expectations of the culture that would have been receiving these instructions. So um, this is from a historian named Jerome Carsopino, uh, who wrote a book called Daily Life in Ancient Rome. Uh, he writes, and I quote, if one bears in mind that the hour at the winter solstice equaled 45 minutes according to our reckoning and 75 minutes at the summer solstice, these data bring the Roman working day down to about seven hours in summer and less than six in winter. Summer and winter alike, Roman workmen enjoyed freedom during the whole or the greater part of the afternoon, and very probably our 40-hour week with its different arrangement would have weighed heavily on them rather than pleased them. It is worth noting that this is Jed talking now. It is worth noting that Paul is writing instructions to people who had a very different conception of a workday than the modern grind culture of America and much of the developed world. Um, so um, Paul did at times caution people against laziness, but that really needs to be taken into um, – that needs to be weighed in the context in which it was delivered. With that in mind, let's talk about the context in which you live. So the first is we're going to kind of set aside spiritual stuff for just a second and just talk about how to think about your work life because, um, unfortunately, 
many people in Christian circles are never given tools to evaluate that. You almost certainly already know this phrase. The phrase is return on investment. Simple idea. Um, you, you know, you invest $100 in something so that you'll get $105 back and $5 is the return. You should do work because you get a return on the investment. You should get something out of your labors and you should get something that you feel really good about that feels just and fair and like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have done that. Anything that you invest in, you can say, well, if I invest a hundred and I get 105 back, I'll invest 200 and I'll get 210 back. It'll be great. Anything that you invest in reaches a point, And again, this is a phrase you almost certainly know called diminishing returns where you could invest more and more and more, but you're actually not getting all that much back anymore. Almost everything in life has a point of diminishing returns, including basically any job you could work. There's a point where you can be putting more and more and more into this, but you're actually just not getting very much out of it. And my question for you is, do you know in your specific situation where diminishing returns kicks in? In other words, you might be saying, well, I want to work hard at my job because I want to impress my boss because I think that's going to up my chances for a promotion. Okay, cool. Maybe that's true and that, that makes sense and that would be a, a good return on investment. There's a certain point, though, where you driving yourself isn't really impressing the boss anymore and it's not really improving your chances for promotion. It's just you driving yourself into the ground. Here's the next part. Are you in touch with your own internal barometer of who you want to be? Hmm. Both in general and in this situation, here's why that matters. No one is excellent at everything. I need you to hear me for a second because this goes right along with the good stuff Lee was telling you. No one, no one, absolutely no one, no one is excellent at everything. That is simply not possible. If you want to be really good at a couple of things, if you want to invest heavily in a couple of things, that is you agreeing with yourself that you will not be investing heavily in other things. So think about who you want to be. Think about what matters to you, not what your pastor says should matter to you and not what, you know, whatever the, the Bible study leader says should matter to you. What matters to you just because it resonates in your heart? The things that resonate in your heart, you should find a way to invest in. Again, you still want to be cognizant of return on investment. You still want to be aware of diminishing returns, but the things that matter to you, you should find a way to invest in them. But the idea of everything you do at all times, you got to be the best of the best because that's um, apparently the Christian thing to do. That's not implementable. I can assure you it's not the Christian thing to do because there is literally no way to live that life. Life is all about opportunity cost. Anything that you choose to put a great deal of resources into, you are doing at the expense of everything else in your life. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a, a calculus that all of us have to do. If you happen to be in a place in your life where your career is really important to you and you have a job you really care about and you really want to invest in it, Great. Awesome. I'm happy for you, man. Again, be mindful of diminishing returns, but that's, that's beautiful. If you're in a place where you have a job, like, eh, I'm not crazy about it. It helps me do what I need to do. I don't really feel like working much harder than I need to. Cause I have the other things that I care about. That's totally cool too, man. Figuring out what makes you feel alive, what resonates with your heart and investing in that I think is a very, very good idea.
I think that's all fantastic stuff. I would I would pick up actually right where Jed left off there of um there's no virtue that I can see to just working really hard for no return. Um uh, as he points out, you know, the if you have a, a job that is just kind of I'm I'm at this point dissociating this from like a, a ministry job or something where you're in helping profession, because that has its own kind of calculus. But if you, you know, go to an office or a job site or a store and you, you put in the hours and they give you a paycheck, and you don't really, to my mind, own much more than the hours for the paycheck. Um, now, there may be reasons that you want to stay a little late or take on an extra project. Maybe it's something that's interesting to you. Maybe you feel like there's a, a path for advancement here and all that. And that's, that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but there is a phrase that became kind of very popular uh, post pan uh, in, in the pandemic. And uh, well, we're kind of still in the pandemic in a lot of ways, um, but post uh, kind of returned to office stuff, which uh, and that phrase was act your wage. Cause um, hmm. just one of the, uh, it sounds like you were raised in a very similar environment to your, your uh, friends here on this show. And along with the, uh, you know, work as if for the Lord and excellence and all things, there was a either spoken or unspoken uh, statement in that that and uh, that that's how you get that's how you get ahead. If you show up and you you're the hardest working one and you volunteer for all the assignments and you you know and you always have a smile on your face and the boss will see that and he'll uh, give you it's always a he in there these people's dream scenarios and he'll say that's that up and comer with upper management written all over him and you know that's how you do it and maybe there was a time in the fifties and sixties where that's exactly how it happened. But, uh, eh, it doesn't happen at every job. And if you know that your job is not one of where that kind of stuff uh, is necessarily rewarded, that's cool. You can show up and do the work. Get paid. You can get me off the uh, junior varsity football team. Matt. Yeah. I was, you know what? If for some of us, the, the lesson we learned early with our academic, uh, with our academic, well, academic as well, and athletic limitations was no amount of hustle can make up for other things. That's right. Be that talent, be that being the boss's nephew, being that having the right degree, whatever. Uh, there are limits to what hustle can bring you. And as as Jed very rightly points out, there's limits to what certain people want. Uh, not everybody wants to be in management. Not everybody wants to own the company. Not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. If you want work that fits in your life, that makes uh, total sense as well. And the thing you mentioned here, which I think is a very good way to put it, is that seems like kind of a scam. Yeah, keep your... Just keep an internal uh, radar out for when things feel like a scam, because uh, when it comes to uh, work and the accumulation of capital for other people in exchange for wage, lots of things are scams. Um, <laughs> things like, we're a family here. No, you're not. This is a workplace. We shouldn't be a family. That sounds like you want to scam me by making me think you're a family, so I'll do extra stuff for free. Shouldn't do things for free. So, uh, and all, on top of all the great stuff these guys gave you, those are some just kind of general, low, low-level practical things to keep in mind. And with that, we're going to move on to our last question here. It comes in and says, Hebrews six one talks about moving beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. What does that mean? Are there extra teachings? How do you know when you're ready to move on? Another very, very cool question. Lee, where would you take this? This is an amazing question. Um, and I, I want to start with some basic things that are really, really important um, to understand that, uh, how do I say this? These were just things that were not in my kind of mental toolbox when I was growing up in church. And I don't know if that's the case for you or not, but the way that I was kind of taught to read or think about the Bible was um, 
that all of the Bible was written to me, and I should be able to understand all of it in my current uh, living and cultural con- like construct and, and context. Okay, so let's start with a very, very, very basic principle. The, absolutely none of the Bible was written to me. Now, I know that sounds very weird, but let me break down what I mean by that. Um, in a broad spiritual sense, the Bible was written for us in the sense that we can glean wisdom and encouragement from it. It can speak to our lives. It can reveal things to us about the Lord. But the Bible was written to people like Philemon and Timothy and the Galatians. It was not written to me. Whenever, this is a very, this helped me a lot in kind of understanding some things that I was misunderstanding about the Bible for years. Whenever I approach the Bible, I am in some way eavesdropping on someone else's letters. Um, A letter was written from someone to someone else, and I have picked up their mail and I am now reading it. (laughs) Now, it's been preserved for me because I can get some wisdom from it and I can get some encouragement from it and... And I can, things can be revealed to me about God. But this was not written to me. It was written to someone or a group of people in a very specific context. The book of Hebrews was written, we don't even actually know who wrote it. It, you know, could have been a a man, could have been a woman who wrote, we don't know who wrote this book. But it was written to a group of Jewish people who had come to follow Jesus as their Messiah. And then, Another group of Jewish people who were in authority over them had begun to persecute them really, really bad. Some of them lost their jobs. Some people were imprisoned. Some people actually lost their lives. And some of these people started going through this kind of mental, um, you know, this mental calculus of, all right, all right, we were Jewish people who started following Jesus and our lives got way, way harder. Um, So let's just go back. Let's just go back to being just normal, you know, Jewish people and and leave the Jesus part out. And then I think we'll be okay. And whoever wrote this book to this group of people was saying, look, I know it's hard, but you can't go back. Like, whatever you do, don't go back. I know it's difficult. I know it's been really, really tough on y'all, but don't go back. Um, and everything that's – and the, the author of this book, and basically that that little – um, understanding right there governs every single verse that happens in this entire 13 chapter book. You can, you could sum up the whole 13 chapters with the two words, don't quit. Like, don't look, I know you want to, I know it's been tough, but don't quit following Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Um, no matter what. Okay. So this author, he or she, whoever wrote it is going to go on in chapters seven, and especially in chapter eight, definitely in chapter nine and big time in chapter 10 to say some really, really important things about how everything that we knew as, as Jewish people and all of our rituals and all of our sacrificial ceremonies and everything, they were all pointing to something that Jesus was going to do for us that nobody could have, n- nothing else and no other ceremonial rite could have possibly done. And what, what you're seeing in the very first verses of chapter 6 are, th- they're all um, basic Jewish religious rituals and rites. 
um, the, the, the different kinds of ceremonial washings that they did and different kinds of, you know, all, all of the things that, that this author mentions. And what this author is saying is, if you go back to that, then I can't even explain to you the stuff that I've got to tell you about in chapters 7, 8, 9, especially in chapter 10. And I've got to tell you this stuff. So stick with me. Don't, don't give up. Okay, um, what does that have to do with you? All right, like I said at the very beginning of this response, and I know that we're down deep into this right now, we are always eavesdropping when we're reading the scriptures into something that was written for someone else. That being the case, as you try to understand the context of what you're reading, your number one question should be, so what? So what does this have to do with me? What in the world does this have to do with me and the, the life that I am living in the, you know, in the 21st century, I'm, I'm in 2024. Um, I am, I'm not observing these old rituals and stuff like that. What does this have to do with me? And I think one of the things that I at least get out of the book of Hebrews is sometimes a life of following, of trying to follow Jesus is going to be inexplicably difficult. And sometimes I'm going to want to hang the whole thing up, but there's, there's more ahead and I should keep going with it because he's got stuff in store for me and stuff that's going to be deeply important and, and deeply amazing. And people have gone before me and have stuck it out and have found some incredible richness and beauty and truth and fullness, even through great suffering. And I want to stick it out too. I might not understand all of these cultural things that don't have a whole lot to do with my experience. But I want to stick this stuff out because I believe that the Lord has something in store for me through suffering, through frustration, through difficulty, that if, if I stick it out, I'm going to find some depth and some beauty and some fullness on the other side of that. That, at least for me, is something that I have gotten out of the book of Hebrews. It's, it's been an answer for me of the so what question. And I know some of this is hazy and some of it is weird just because it's like, this is not the world that I live in. These rituals, these ceremonies, these rites, these are, this is not the context in the world that I interact with every day. That's right. We're eavesdropping into an ancient world. And loving your neighbor sometimes means loving your ancient neighbor. And it means delving into the situation that they lived in to find out, so what does this have to do with me? And that at least is one thing. I'm not saying it's everything that somebody gets out of the book of Hebrews, but it's something that has given me some encouragement and wisdom and some tenacity in my own faith through times of suffering and frustration in my life. Really, really well put. And Jed, where we close this out? It's great stuff. And so let's kind of pick up right where Lee left off and say, if you follow the uh, uh, exhortation of the writer of Hebrews and say, I'm not going to quit, I'm going to do what this person said, and I'm going to press on to a place of maturity, what would maturity look like? And so let's walk through, this is in my experience, but let's walk through what the commonalities of maturity are in almost anything. And I don't just mean in matters of faith. This, this applies to all kinds of, of areas of life, because there's Again, in my experience, there, there are some, some through lines that go through anybody that's mature at anything. I think one of the first things is a quiet confidence. People who are mature in something, they know what they know. Um, it's not 
it's not a brag. They don't need to flex it. They, they've been there. They've done it. They, they know what they know. The second, interestingly, is kind of the other side of that, which is a very non-showy humility. People who are willing to simply tell you the things they don't know. Um, it's interesting. I do a lot of informational interviewing as a part of my work, and I'm, I'm very regularly talking to people who have a significant expertise in all kinds of fields of endeavor. And I ask a ton of questions and I get told, I don't know, a lot like people who, you know, are, you know, doctors and lawyers and psychologists and military officers, people who really know stuff regularly. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that's worth thinking about that. A mature person has no problem saying, I don't know. And that kind of leads to the next thing, which is people who have a real maturity have a willingness to ask questions because they know what they know and because they don't have a problem admitting the things they don't know, they're happy to ask questions. They, they have no problem with that at all. And that kind of leads into the next thing, which is one of the principles that I think typically goes with people who have real maturity in whatever area of life is the idea of seek first to understand, then to be understood. This is a great maxim to live by. And I think it's something that people with maturity do where I don't need to start by a, um, you thinking I'm amazing and you have to give, uh, uh, you know, praise to all my neat ideas. I want to hear first where you're coming from. I want to get a sense of, of how you're feeling, what you're thinking, what, what you believe the situation is. The next thing that comes after that is I think people who are very mature, at least in whatever their thing is, they understand the idea of typically, but not always, which is to say life is complicated. There are things that are typically true, but they're not always true. There are things that are true for most people, but man, there's 8 billion people on planet earth. There's nothing that's true for everybody at all times and all seasons. Things can be typically true, but that doesn't mean that they're always true. Similarly, people who are mature, they recognize that life is complicated and stuff just happens and and things go wrong. And it's not even necessarily somebody's fault. It just, it's just life. It's just, it's just the nature of the cosmos. And if you, if you combine all of those traits, and again, these are just things that I've observed as as commonalities amongst, you know, mature people. If, If you combine all of those things together, I think that that actually very often results in kindness. Mm. I think people who are mature very, very often land on a place of being much more compassionate and understanding and kind than, than you would expect. Because when you have a quiet confidence and you have a real humility and you're willing to ask questions and you seek to understand and you recognize that there are no things that are always true and that life is complicated and that stuff happens, that kind of adds up to compassion and kindness. Now, here's the thing that I want you to think about is how many of those traits do you see in people who happen to have a lot of Bible knowledge? Because I think there's probably not a huge crossover. Hmm. And one of the takeaways on that is knowing a lot of facts and having maturity are not the same thing. They're not even close to the same thing. Plenty of people who have real maturity do know plenty of facts, but that's, that's not the same. Whatever kind of maturity the writer of the book of Hebrews is calling you and me and all of us into, it is not a fact-driven maturity. 
This this is not something where there's there's some extra uh, super technical Bible facts, and once you know them, then you'll be in the elite varsity club of Christians. The Christian life is one that is lived out. It is one that is practiced, and it is one that follows the same rules of quiet confidence, humility, asking questions, seeking to understand, recognizing that life is complicated, and landing on kindness and compassion. It's cool for somebody to know a lot of Bible facts, but when you look around, find people who display that kind of maturity and learn from them of how you can emulate that in your own life. Beautifully put by both of these guys. We are going to leave it there. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. I'm going to keep that entirely anonymous tear of the song this week. In many ways, this is the most say that you can fit into one song. It was written by Jed. It's performed by Lee. It's called God Don't Let Me Quit. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, God, don't let me quit. Jesus, I don't have the strength unless you give me it. God, don't Unless you give me it